Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Doxology. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for this evening. So tonight, we will be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from the back of the pew in front of you. Um, those do belong to Christ Church, so we ask that you return them. But if you need a Bible, we have some blue Bibles in the lobby, and you can keep one of those as our gift to you. So once again, we are reading this evening from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's word. Thank you, Betsy. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all again. Our second 4 p.m. service, time change, and more of you are on time this week, so great job. Uh, yeah, very proud of you guys. Um, so for those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, really glad that you're here. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, or you're just checking out Christianity for the first time, we're thrilled that you're here, and we would just love for you to see that who we're all about here is Jesus, and we would love for you to get to know him, as we found him so spectacular to be. And so uh, what we're doing is we're continuing in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we should finish up right before Easter, and then just a heads up of where we're going, we'll have a uh, sermon on Easter. Um, we're going to look at the, the tale of two sons from Luke 15. This will be a really good passage both for believers, uh, but also it's a really good, pa it's, it's a story that Jesus tells, and it really resonates with unbelievers as well, and so it's a great opportunity for you all to invite people in your life who don't know Jesus. So that'll be Easter, and then after that, uh, we are going to do a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments, why would we look at the old book of Exodus. Well, you're going to have to come and find out. And looking forward to going through that with you guys and just see how, how rich it is for our lives today, okay? So, but as we finish up Hebrews here, uh, we've been reiterating the theme each week that Hebrews is about. Uh, it's the exhortation to persevere, draw near, do it together. Persevere, draw near, do it together. And what this passage tonight emphasizes is that third part, do it together, do it together. And so see in the, the first verse, verse 12, it says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So the author is continuing this image of a race that he began earlier in chapter 12. And I think when we read this, often the image that pops into our mind is, okay, you know, I'm running a marathon and I'm by myself. And so what I need to do is, you know, give myself some self-talk and you know, pull my shoulders back and, and keep going. But that's not actually the sense of this exhortation. So, and it comes out more in the Greek because the pronouns are plural. So essentially how it reads is, therefore, you all lift your drooping hands and strengthen one another's knees is the image, right? So it's less of a, I'm just running on my own, but it's more you're running with a group of people and you see your companions stumbling and so you come alongside them to, to, to lift them up and help them keep going, Okay. And so as we jump into this passage on, like, what does life together look like, uh, I think it's just worth highlighting that 
I mean, sometimes you hear something so much, it just becomes background noise and you no longer believe it. So we hear frequently, you know, the phrase, we live in an individualistic culture. But like we hear that so much that it kind of just becomes like, yeah, we're individualistic, yada, yada, yada. And we don't really think about the fact that, you know, this idea of living without much regard to our communal and social ties uh, has really been absorbed into our own bloodstream. It's not just, you know, p- those people out there, uh, but all of us are influenced by this intense culture of, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And so it's really critical that we, that we take this seriously because these exhortations here to watch out for each other, they, they're very unnatural to us. They, they don't come instinctually. Okay, so uh, here's what we'll do as we look at this passage on running the race together. Uh, first, we'll see... Um, what is it that we're called to do for one another? Okay, what is it that we're called to do for one another? Number two, why are we called to do it? And then number three, how do we do this? Okay, so first, like, what are we called to do together, according to this passage? Number two, why should we do this together? And then number three, uh, how do we actually do this? Like some practical outworkings of this. Okay, so first number one, what are we called to do together? So verse 12, therefore, so, therefore, it's picking up on the theme of last week's text, uh, which is in verse 3 through 11, which is this theme of God will discipline us to reproduce Christ's character and his glory in us. And then he says, because of this, because of God working in you, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and then verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so in a physical race, if your knees are hurting, your joints are tired, it's only going to make things more difficult if you choose to run on a path that's up and down and big rocks everywhere, you know, that you're going to trip on and stumble on and so forth, right? So it's going to make sense if you have the option available to you to choose a path that's straight and smooth. Okay, I know we have some runners in here. Hopefully I'm speaking correctly so far. I'm not a big runner myself. Okay, so physically, that's what we want to do in a race, but spiritually... Okay, because this is in the, Hebrews 12 is about moral and spiritual transformation. When it says what's lame may not be put out of joint, it's this, it's getting at the reality that in all of us, we are spiritually lame. Meaning there are, you know, we're image bearers, so we're not like as bad as we could be. But in all of us, there are parts of our character that don't reflect Christ as it should. And so what we're called to do with each other is to help other people, help others in our local church, have a straight path. This is a reference to Proverbs, like the straight path of righteousness, so that we can be conformed to Christ's image, spiritually and morally. Okay, or put a little bit more succinctly, verses 3 through 11 are that God forms us to look like Jesus. Here, verse 12 through 17, it's showing the ordinary means by which God makes us look like Jesus. And that's by other people in our lives coming alongside us and helping us do that. And so what it's calling us to do essentially is to, it's to take responsibility for the moral and spiritual formation of one another in, a, in your church. That, that's the message. Okay, we're called to actually take responsibility for the moral and spiritual formation of one another in the local church. And so as we move into why we should do this, why is this so important? It, it's worth pointing out, I think, two cultural headwinds that makes this very difficult for us to do, okay, or, or at minimum counterintuitive, okay, this idea of taking responsibility for someone else's moral formation, and that's, and the first headwind that we're up against is where we're at culturally, 
uh, to a great degree is moral formation just isn't something that our culture prioritizes very highly at large. I was listening to an interview with a regular New York Times columnist uh, a couple weeks ago, and they were, they were discussing the you know, social and political fragmentation in our nation, and they, they said something very fascinating. I don't know if they're a believer or not, but they said, you know, in ancient cultures, they tended to prioritize moral formation. So, like, it was esteemed, you were esteemed if you pursued, you know, wisdom and temperance and sacrifice, you know, to become a deeper, richer person. But in our modern culture, like, the things we most highly prize and reward people for are career success, for, you know, putting yourself out there on a social media platform and getting a lot of followers, uh, and in the absence of religion in a secular culture where, you know, meaning in life is on the here and now, we've essentially made politics into our new religion. And so meaning in life is found with, you know, investing a lot of energy into keeping up with the news headlines and then waging war on your political enemies. And so one of the reasons why we're seeing so much fragmentation is because when we forego, like, deep character formation, like, of course, you know, we're going to treat anyone who has a different view than us as our enemy and just live these siloed lifestyles with ourselves. And, you know, for us as well, this is an issue for, for us, because I think, you know, you have to admit there's something that's more immediately thrilling when you're recognized as a somebody in your career field than thinking like, hey, you know, I think I became a little less self-absorbed last week. Or, hey, over the past year, I became more generous with, fin- with my finances. Because society just, like, moral formation, it's almost too ordinary and impractical for a cultural moment. And so we're going to be feeling this as well, okay? A lot of us just aren't going to tend to care about it. So that's the first headwind we're up against when it comes to caring about moral and spiritual change. And the second reason why this idea of like speaking into someone else's life to help them be, look more like Jesus, the reason why it's going to be so difficult is it be, because it violates one of the central creeds of our culture, which is that feelings are the ultimate guide, Feelings are the ultimate guide. This creed, it takes a number of forms, you know, uh, follow your heart or only you are the expert on you. And, and this makes sense in secularism because in secularism, you belong to yourself and you don't have an external authority, you know, such as God, where you need to conform your moral life to. Okay, and so you get to decide how you want to live. But what this does is it puts you in essentially an untouchable cocoon of authority Right? Because if somebody else comes along and says, hey, you know, you're living this way, I don't know if that's right, like your immediate response is going to be, well, you don't know how I feel, so who are you to come in and, and speak into my personal experience? And yet it's so interesting because in virtually every other area of life, we recognize that we need other people to correct us if we want to grow. So if you want to learn to swim, you're going to need a swim instructor to correct you. If you want to learn about political science, you're going to go to university and then do an internship. But for some reason, when it comes to the moral realm, like we get very prickly when, spe- when people speak into our lives. And so in the church, we're going to be resistant to other people speaking in our lives. And I think we're going to resist or we're going to be very hesitant to speak into other people's lives because it's like, well, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Yeah, do we need to be compassionate? And generous, of course. But what we're called here is to essentially listen to Jesus who says, I'm offering you a better way because you don't belong to yourself. 
I bought you with a price through my death and my resurrection. And since I designed you, I alone am the one knows and, and the one who knows how your soul thrives and hums as you live. And so conform your life to me and allow other people in your community to help you do it. Okay, so, so that's the first point is this, we need to help one another take responsibility uh, for each other's moral and spiritual growth uh, in, in our church. Okay, uh, so that's the first thing. Now, number two, why, this is, it's hard, it's awkward. Okay, so why, why should we do it? Why is it so important? And let's look in verse 14 and 15. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not saying that only if you become holy enough is God going to accept you in his family. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is God accepts you into his family first by grace, but then an evidence that you do belong to Jesus is you strive for holiness, i.e. you strive to, to look like Jesus. And so that's why we don't want to coast in the Christian life, okay, because coasting is an indicator of, you know, somebody who doesn't belong to Christ, okay, so strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, and then verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, this is pretty stark, and in as clear as terms as I can put it, what it's saying is, if I don't mature, and please don't assume it's easy for a pastor to mature, if I don't keep maturing and make it to the end, you are somewhat responsible for that. And conversely, if you don't keep maturing and make it to the end, I am somewhat responsible for that. If the person near you in one of these seats doesn't keep maturing, and make it to the end, then all of us bear some responsibility for that. Okay, this, is a, this is a weighty reality. It's a, it's a foreign reality, especially in a me and Jesus kind of mindset. But this is the, the responsibility and, and the privilege that we're given to do with one another. And you see, our natural response when we hear this is to be like, we looked at a number of weeks ago when Pastor Paul came is to be like Cain. We looked at the first murder in the Bible, Genesis 4, and Cain murders his brother Abel. God comes after Cain, and he says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, in other words, I'm not responsible for my brother. And God's answer to Cain is, in Jesus, is yes, you are your brother's keeper. And Jesus came first to bear our responsibility. He paid the ultimate responsibility for us. And then he invites us to then bear responsibility for one another's spiritual and moral well-being so that we can persevere and make it to the end. And, I mean, this can come out in just really simple ways. You know, so say you see someone who just starts to, you know, of course, yeah, we all can and should, you know, go on vacations, and, you know, we can miss church and community groups from time to time, but you know, say, say you see someone start to develop a pattern of missing community group or missing church, or you see someone begin to become maybe a little too preoccupied with how they look, 
explore a career success, or you notice someone tends to speak harshly about other people, our natural response is going to be, that's going to be a really awkward conversation <laughs> if I try to, to speak into their life. And you know, I'm not my sister's keeper. I'm not my brother's keeper. What we're called is to take Jesus' charge to say, I am my sister's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. And I need to, to care about them enough to speak into something gently, of course, not coming in with assumptions, of course, but to speak to them and even be willing to bear their temporary irritation in order to help them persevere. Okay, because the stakes are high. So why do we help one another morally and spiritually transformed? Because why without it, no one will see the Lord. The stakes are eternal. It's immortals with whom we eat and dine and laugh with, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Okay, so first, what are we called to do? Help one another, morally and spiritually mature. Number two, why do we do it? Because the stakes are, are very high. We need to help one another make it to the end. So number three, uh, what are some ways that we do this? And you could summarize the exhortations here into two. Uh, so first is to uh, remove any obstacles. And then number two is keep eyes ahead. Okay, so first we help one another, we, re we remove obstacles. And then number two, we keep eyes ahead. So first, uh, remove obstacles. We see this here in verse 13, to make straight paths for your feet. That's the idea of, you know, clearing the path of anything that's going to hinder other people's, other people's running the race well. And then number 14, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. So it's, it's getting at the reality that life together sounds great until you actually have to do it. Okay, this is one reason why very few people vacation with others for longer than a week in the same home. I mean, after four days, you're like, I'm so sick of you. <laughs> I need to go back to, my, back to my place. I need to stop being in such intimate quarters with you. you know, or why you know, a lot of us, and there's a big push now for greater diversity you know, in churches and you know, in, in different institutions as a whole. And yes, we should be pushing for that. But I think one reason why a lot of people don't really want to do it when push comes to shove is because it's really hard to actually practice it when you have very different people who come together. And so strive for peace with everyone. It's just when you come together, and you're actually not living super in superficial relationships, but in one another's lives, differences are going to come to the surface, and it, it's going to start to hurt. You know, you're going to get annoyed. Someone's going to hurt your feelings. And Romans 14, it's one of the best commentaries on this idea where Paul essentially says, you know, you guys are dividing over secondary issues. You know, so what worship days to esteem as holy, whether or not to eat meat offered to idols. Um, but in modern terms, it, he's saying, you guys are dividing over things that aren't central to the gospel. You know, so one example is, you know, one of the saddest things over the past couple years has been, there have been a lot of, there have been a lot of people who have changed churches due to their political convictions or to their convictions on, you know, how we should handle COVID rather than people actually think, rethinking, okay, how, how may I shift my political convictions according to scripture? Or how at minimum can I bear in love with one another, with the people in my church who have landed on a very different side of the aisle for me, you know, when it comes to COVID, politics, and so forth. And even just an interview I was listening to last week, they've been doing some interesting, but again, sad studies on how like a lot of churches have seen 
a lot of growth over the past year and a half, but it hasn't come from new people coming to faith in Christ. It's come from the leadership taking like a very loud and, and polarizing stance on one extreme. So then a lot of the people flock from one side in one church and then come and the church grows that way. And so as we think about helping remove obstacles for people and striving for peace with everyone, just one application here is when it comes to secondary issues, as much as possible, we need to think about how our thoughts and actions and so forth may impact someone else in our church family. And here, I don't want to be too prescriptive here because the scriptures aren't too prescriptive. And as we've said here before, we want to be very careful about saying, you know, laying down thou shalt, the Bible does not. Uh, but here at minimum, just are some principles. Okay, so, so think about something like politics and COVID, okay? If you're in a group, say a community group setting or a group, you know, that's just hanging out with people and say it's, you know, I don't know, it's a big enough group to where you have some people you're really comfortable with, but then some other people you don't know that well. And you and a few of your buddies just start laying down some pretty strong opinions on, you know, just here's how sensible people should vote and here's how sensible people should approach something like a COVID vaccine or a mask. Just take a minute to think about if there's someone else in that group, especially if, you know, they don't know you very well yet, and they've landed on a different position, is that going to put them in a position where they feel like, oh, wow, like, I guess I'm stupid because I don't hold the position, I don't hold this position that everybody else is. You know, is that going to help them feel welcome in a community? Okay, does it mean we never, like, talk about it, intense and important things? Absolutely not. But it's just, it's an awareness, right, of how you say things, right, and how you are or are not inviting other people into a conversation may impact them. Or uh, another thing, and this may seem, you know, really innocent, um, but I just, I want us to be challenged here as we think about not putting obstacles in other people's way to help them run well. I mean, something just as really simple as, I actually don't think many of you are on social media. Um, I don't know. Maybe you are. We have only like two Google reviews, guys. Come on. Like, <laughs> come on. Give us, give, give us some help. <laughs> but I don't think we're a very social media heavy church. But just think about like if your social media feed, for example, is filled with pictures of you taking elaborate trips or filled with pictures of you and the love of your life or you and your children. Okay, in a vacuum, that's fine. But just stop and think about, what if someone in my church family isn't able to afford taking vacations? What if someone in my church family really wants a spouse or a partner? What if someone in my church family really wants kids and can't have them? Like, what does that do? And what we're not saying here is don't post pictures of your children or vacations, right? Or you, like, if you get married or you find a new boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, I mean, like, we, we do, we are kind of rejoice with those who rejoice. But the, the point here is just, just to be thoughtful and be judicious in thinking with how, that just the things you're speaking or how you're posting, is that going to help 
other people in your family run well. And you may be thinking like, wow, it sounds like a lot of thinking before I just put something online. Yeah, that's why an individualistic faith is so appealing, because <laughs> we don't have to think as much. But I just want to lovingly challenge you guys. Okay, and I need to work on this too. Okay, so we need to help one another remove obstacles in, in, in each other's lives. So that's the first thing, remove obstacles. And then number two, keep eyes ahead. Keep eyes ahead. We see this with the example with Esau. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So the story of Esau and Jacob, you can read about this scene in Genesis chapter 25. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And what happens is Esau has this younger brother, Jacob, and they don't have a great relationship. And in large part, you could say it's a result of, it's, it's a good story of the destruction of parents showing favoritism, you know, what that does to a set of brothers and sisters. So they don't have a great relationship. And Esau, he, is a, he loves physical activity. He loves hunting and being out the woods, in the woods and so forth. Jacob is his artistic brother. Okay, he, he loves cooking. He loves painting and music and so forth. And so Esau comes in from hunting and he's exhausted. And Jacob has just cooked up a bowl of stew. And Esau looks at Jacob and he goes, Jacob, I'm exhausted. Please give me you know, a bowl of stew. And Jacob responds, okay, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you the stew. Now, a birthright, we hear that, we go, okay, yeah, whatever, because uh, we don't think in birthright terms, at least I don't, I don't think we do today. But a birthright, it was an extremely valuable material and spiritual commodity. Okay, so a material commodity, uh, if you had the birthright, this meant you would get double of all your siblings when your father passed away. So you would get double the inheritance. And for Esau, in a pretty wealthy family, like, that would have been a lot. Okay, so it's, it's materially valuable and it was spiritually valuable. So as the eldest son, uh, once your father passes, you then are the spiritual leader of the family and of the people. Okay, so it was, it was spiritually and materially very expensive. And so when Jacob says, okay, you're hungry and exhausted, sell me your birthright. Like, if you're living in that culture and you hear that, you would know Jacob is absolutely mad. Because for Jacob to say, oh, okay, you want a bowl of stew? stew give me your, it's the same thing as saying, oh, you're hungry for a bowl of stew? Give me $20 million. That's the equivalent. And Esau says, okay. And he gives it to him. And what's the purpose here? What Esau did is he gave up what mattered most, right, his birthright, for what he wanted now. He gave up what mattered most for what he wanted now. And it's easy to point the finger at Esau and say, you're such an idiot. But, I mean, can't we all relate to that? And, and that's why here he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So that word unholy actually like, literally means secular or focused on the immediate. Okay, so you're focused on like your, your passions, what you want now. And that's why it says, no one is, see that no one is sexually immoral like Esau. And it's an interesting adjective because when you read the story, you don't see any indicator that he was sexually immoral. Um, but what the author is getting at is, Esau was a man of appetites. Okay, so he, I mean, he loved to eat. His stomach was hungry. He would eat. 
And so a, a very clear parallel is what is sexual immorality, right? When you go outside of God's design for sex, it's just you have an appetite, and so you take what you want now instead of for what matters most, following the Lord. And so that's, that's the story of Esau. And so see back in verse 15, now how does it apply to, us, apply to us in helping one another keep our eyes ahead and keeping our eyes on what matters most instead of what we want in the now. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. So root of bitterness here, it doesn't mean a feeling. Like for the longest time I read this and thought, oh, see that no one holds a grudge you know, or holds anger in towards someone else. But root of bitterness here doesn't refer to a feeling, but a person. And the context is from Deuteronomy 29. But the idea here is, see that a root of bitterness doesn't spring up and defile many others. It's an image of, you know, say you have leftovers in your fridge, two different containers, and one of them starts to get moldy. It wouldn't make sense for you to take the moldy food and then put it in the, in the fresh food. Why? Because it would defile the fresh food. And so it's this idea of, when people in the community start to become very secular or very just in the here and now in our thinking, and we don't come alongside one another and help correct one another, it's going to spread. And so, like, what are a couple examples of ways that we are very fixated on the here and now or secular in our thinking? And I think, you know, some very obvious ones are, you know, with our money, uh, with our body. Right now, it's just very common for us to think, you know, well, it's my body, so I can do what I want with it. And our lifestyles. You know, we're very fixated on, you know, living for immediate and personal happiness in the here and now, rather than for God's eternal kingdom. And, um, you know, not too long ago, I was talking with one of my friends, and he recently got a great financial opportunity uh, to where it looks like he may even be able to come, like, financially independent and through a lot of passive income. And he's a, he's a believer, as far as I know. And I just asked him, I said, oh, wow, that's, we're really good friends, right? Um, and then I said, you know, what are you, because you're going to quit your job and you're going to have a lot of free time. I just said, what are you going to do with your new free time? And he's, his response was, whatever I want. You know, I, I'll probably buy another home. You know, I'll probably buy a couple new homes in areas that I want to really live and just live in warm areas throughout the year. And I just remember thinking, and I say this is not as condemnation on him because like that, you can feel that pull is strong. But I just remember thinking, how is that any different than if someone who didn't know Jesus suddenly became financially independent? And you see that it's, it's this thought on being focused on what I want now instead of what matters most. And so you see what Esau needed when he was about to give away his birthright for a bowl of stew, what he needed was a brother to say, what are you doing? Dude! Like, he needed Jacob to not take advantage of his appetites in the moment, but to say, Esau, like, wake up and look at what you're doing. And guys, in all of our lives, there is an air in my life, in your life, where something is just so much more appealing to Jesus than us right now. And we need, I need you, you need each other to speak in your life and say, 
I know you want this so badly, but don't give up Jesus for what you want now. Okay, and we can do this, why? Because we have Jesus. He's the anti-Esau. Okay, Esau gave up what mattered most for what he wanted now. Jesus Christ, during his trial and while on the cross, he gave up what he wanted now to escape the pain, to escape the shame, to escape getting judged for your sin. For what mattered most to him? which was getting able to call you his younger brother and younger sister. And then he's the, also the anti-Jacob because he loves you and me enough to say, don't give up the kingdom for something in the here and now. And he invites us to do it for our brothers in, this, in the church as well so that we can help one another make it to the end. So let's do that together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dearly Father, I thank you so much for, I thank you so much for Jesus, um, who in so many ways doesn't live like us, and uh, gave up his inheritance in order to give us a place in your kingdom, and so that we could be called sons and daughters of the Most High. I pray that you will help us to um, have some conversations, even if it's in the next week or two that we need to have, to help one another grow and become more like Jesus, and help us also to invite other people in. Uh, so that we're people where it's okay to have those kinds of conversations with. And I pray that you will use this, Lord, so that um, when you restore and renew all things, uh, we can look one another, look at one another and say, thank you so much for saying what you did uh, to help me make it here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.